No, it's okay, because I just turned the mic on. Um, I've been told to do something to prevent catastrophe, but I don't remember what it is, so if there's a catastrophe, please let me know. Um, I'm Tonya Petit. Um, I see patients at the Moore Clinic at Johns Hopkins um, Hospital, and I've previously worked at multiple other places providing HIV care and transpacific care. And this talk is going to be pretty different. If you were at the one this morning, it's going to be pretty different. That was sort of a general HIV prevention um, data stuff. And this is going to be more like nitty-gritty clinical care. So I would rather that you interrupt me, actually, while I'm talking. If something doesn't make sense or if you have questions or if you disagree with me or if your clinical experience is different, I would prefer that. I've been told that that big speaker there will make crazy noise if I get too close to it, so I'm probably going to hang on this side of the room, but I really do love the people on this side of the room just as much as I love the people on this side of the room, and I don't know any of you, so that <laughs> works out pretty well. Um, I'm supposed to show this, I guess. Your evaluations are going to be emailed. It's my first time seeing it. I have no idea what it says, but it's about your C CEU or CME credits. Um, so I'm going to be talking specifically about clinical management of transgender women. And the reason I'm focusing on transgender women is because that's where the heaviest burden of HIV is, and that is where we have data, and because I only have an hour. So <laughs> um, that is the reason for that focus. This is my real slide. This is a slide they made up. I don't have any financial affiliations, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and at the end of this, I hope that we can, we will have talked about the key elements of primary care for trans women with HIV. I don't think it's actually all that complicated. Um, and we're going to talk about drug-drug interactions, not because there are a lot of them, but because I want you to feel really comfortable with a few that there are, and most of them are with drugs that we don't actually use that often anymore. And I have two things in my hand, so I'm going to try to press the right thing. And I like to start with a case. Are people able to see that pretty clearly? Okay, great. So this, names are made up to protect the guilty. Um, this is Chantel. She's a 26-year-old trans woman who comes with newly diagnosed HIV to your clinic. She's asking for hormones, particularly estrogen, and she's asking for sildenafil. Do people know what that is? I had to change the generic. Okay, good. Um, her past medical history is not very significant. She's had no illnesses or hospitalizations that she reports to you. She doesn't take any medications. Her CD4 count is 175, and her viral load is 80,000, and all of her other labs, her CMP or CBC, everything else is normal. When you do the physical exam, you notice that she has bilateral breast buds, I see around 10 or 2, and a feminine body contour, otherwise unremarkable. All right, so what does she need? She needs HIV treatment. How about that? She's at your HIV clinic. She's not asking for HIV medicine at all, but she needs HIV treatment, right? Okay. What about in terms of primary care? What does she need? Okay, somebody said anal pap. I agree. STI screening. STI screening. Great. How do you know she needs STI screening? How do you know she needs STI screening? She has HIV. Okay, good. <laughs> I love asking questions. Everybody knows the answer to. And she's using sildenafil, so she's probably having sex, right? Great. Anything else? Yes. Exactly. When I assess her for mental health, depression, substance use, the things you would do for all of your HIV patients. Great. Yeah, sort of HIV primary care melange. How's that for a fancy word? Um, do you have any questions about her history? Anything that she presented that was slightly unusual to you or that made you pause? Yeah. 
Yes, yeah, so she's taking some meds, even though she says she's on no meds. Um, you when did she start with hormones, right? So you might want a gender history. How long has she identified as trans? How long has she been on hormones? Where does she get her hormones? Good. You want to know about smoking status? Yep. And anything about her exam that surprises you? I heard lots of things, but I couldn't pick out anyone. Yeah, so in your physical exam, you know, she had bilateral breast buds and a feminine body contour, but she says she's not taking any medications, right? So somebody did point this out. So you might want to find out how did this happen. Maybe she's not taking any medications. What other way could she get a feminine body contour? Silicone injections, right, right, great. Need to do a genital exam? And what are you looking for in your genital exam? Okay. <laughs> in case she made it up. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So you're trying to see if the, what's consistent and what's non-consistent in terms of her phenotype and her description of herself. Okay. I'll buy that for a dollar. I don't know that she would buy that for a dollar. She might be like, mm, no. But you could, you could suggest that to her. Yes. Excellent. So you want to identify her goals, right? So she's asking for hormones. What does, she, what does she want to achieve with the hormones? What is her ultimate goal? And I always have a conversation with people about their ultimate goal and what I think I can help them get to within reasonable expectation. And then if those don't match up, helping people figure out how to fill that gap if it's possible. Yes. That's a great question. I love, I love talking to people who are actually in clinical practice. <laughs> so the question was, would you, I, I have to repeat it for the microphone, but would you be able to handle both her HIV-related needs, primary care needs, and gender-related needs all in one visit? And it depends. Like if you have an hour, which sometimes I have, and she's not so talkative, and she doesn't have a big medical history, maybe. But, you know, if she had a lot of medical concerns, if she likes to talk a lot, if you have to go through a translator, for example, and it takes twice as long, there's all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't be able to cover it. So then you'd have to figure out how to prioritize. And so for her, what would you prioritize? What do you think she prioritizes? Right. <laughs> right, so she's prioritizing her hormones and you're prioritizing her HIV. So part of the the art of medicine, right, is trying to figure out how much of the HIV can we talk about today and how much of her gender journey are we going to talk about today? Yes? And I think if you, if you ask her all those questions about her, her transgender, you know, issues, questions, you know, that's where you get Okay. Okay, and that's like people, if you tell people you're going to get there, even if you don't get there right then, then they're more likely to go along with that than to be like, I'm not dealing with that today. Do you realize how low your CD4 count is? We're going to talk about that. You don't want to do that <laughs> with people. Um, but they're all people who are completely impatient. They're like, I didn't leave with a prescription today, so I'm not coming back. So we're trying to figure out what kind of person she is, like, and she'll probably tell you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if you find out she's getting hormones on the street and you think that she's doing it in a dangerous fashion, which people typically are, then you might be able to do some harm reduction by prescribing or taking over her care. Yeah. Great. You guys don't need this talk. We're done. <laughs>
All right. So these are the things you basically have already said to me, written on a slide, that you want to talk about her history of gender interventions, right? When did she start uh, transitioning socially? And we're going to talk a little bit about what tucking is, if you don't know already. What kind of hormones is she taking? What dose is she taking? How frequently is she taking them? Has she been on and off of them, which is common for a lot of people? Um, how does she get them? Does she use needles? And if she does use needles for injecting hormones, where does she get them? You want to find out if she's using silicone and, and what part of her body is she getting them? Where is she getting the silicone from? Does she go to pumping parties where groups of women come together and get injections from usually unlicensed um, providers? And just, it's really hard to think about harm reduction when we talk about silicone injections because there really isn't safe, loose silicone injection existing, right? So <laughs> talking to her about maybe reducing, if she gets regular silicone injections, reducing the frequency, um, all other alternatives in terms of accessing the phenotype that she's looking for. Um, you want to re review her goals for gender transition, talk about psychosocial issues. We already talked about that. Um, you want to assess her social support system. So she's 26. She might have started transitioning a long time ago. Maybe her family is supportive. Maybe they're not. Maybe she has a community of trans women that she really relies on. Maybe she doesn't. If you're aware of support groups in your area or even online groups that you can refer her to, that's always helpful for people who might feel isolated. And then you want to talk about safety concerns. Safety, both related to what hormone she might be using, if she's using silicone injections. But also, I always talk to trans women about their physical safety because there's a huge epidemic of violence against transgender women, particularly transgender women of color in this country, right? So what are some, she's obviously not responsible for that, but what kinds of things that she can, do, can she do to keep herself safe? Maybe you want to talk to her about when she goes out at night, making sure she's always with a group of friends, if that's possible, that she doesn't go places alone, those kinds of things that probably many of us have talked to our daughters about if we have them. <laughs> All right, any questions about that? Then routine preventive care, right? All trans women, unless they've had a prostatectomy for prostate cancer, will have a prostate, whether or not they've had gender-affirming surgery. The prostate is not re removed necessarily. So whatever the guidelines are that you're following for prostate screening, you need to follow those same guidelines for transgender women, with the exception that there is a caveat with the PSA. What's the issue with the PSA for a transgender woman who's on estrogen? Is it reliable? Right, so you're going to rely more on your physical exam than on the PSA for a transgender woman who's taking estrogen. If she has testicles, you want to do a testicular exam. Um, breast exams and mammography, I feel like the entire world is in controversy about that for all people with breasts. <laughs> so depending on where you land with that, um, all I can say is that um, in the Center of Excellence for Transgender Health has primary care protocols online, and you will have that website at the end of, in the slides. Um, and they recommend not doing mammogram on anybody who's had less than five years of hormone exposure, which makes sense, right? They're unlike, people are unlikely to develop breast cancer with less than five years of hormone exposure, although there are the rare cases. Um, and then to follow the routine guidelines in terms of age that you would use for other women. Any questions or comments about that? I'll probably say something completely different in six months or a year because guidelines <laughs> will change, but that's where we are right now. And then I am a proponent of anal pap smears. So I recommend if she's having anal intercourse that she also have an anal pap smear to screen for um, anal cancer um, and dysplasia. There is no information whatsoever about neovaginal pap smears, just not available. For most women who have 
um, genital reconstruction surgery and a neovagina is created, typically it's keratinized skin that's used in a penile inversion technique. So the likelihood of there being um, cancer there is pretty low, and STIs is pretty low. But there are some people who have a different technique where intestinal tissue is used, and if that's the case, then those people might be at higher risk of having an STI or some sort of dysplasia. So I would say what I typically do is an exam. You don't do like act like it's not there, right? It's there, so you want to <laughs> examine it. Um, but whether or not somebody needs a pap smear really depends on the types of procedures that they've had done and also your level of concern. Question? I would follow the same guidelines as I would for other women, so typically every three years unless they have an atypical result, yeah. Great. Other comments or questions about this? Yes. Mm. Great. That is a great question. So the question is, is there any psychological component to doing the exams? And that's a great question. So what I typically do is even if I'm doing an anal pap smear for a trans woman, I will um, ask her to get into stirrups because you can do the exam in stirrups, right? So you would do the exam in the same way you do an exam for any other woman, right? And that's part of having a gender affirming visit with you. So thank you for bringing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so the point is that for some women who've had silicone injections many years ago, and maybe not even many years ago, it hardens, sometimes it migrates around the body, it's really hard to do an effective physical exam, and it's hard to, necessar it's hard to interpret sometimes the mammogram if they have those done. So that is just a fact. I wish I, if anybody has a solution to that. So a breast ultrasound will give you more information. It won't give you the same information as a, as a mammogram. And maybe an MRI might be more sensitive. I don't know. I've never referred anybody for one. Do you find that the ultrasound is helpful in terms of screening for cancer or just screening for other abnormalities? Okay, so she's recommending an ultrasound. Um, I think practices might be different in places where my patients have abnormal mammograms. Often they go for a squishier mammogram <laughs> where they go isolate the spot where they see the abnormality. But definitely if somebody can't have a mammogram because their breasts are too dense, an, an ultrasound is gonna be much better than nothing, right? Yeah, absolutely, thank you, yes. It depends on their age, yeah. I am using the same guidelines, yep. I, I don't have any other, yeah. <laughs> Can you the oh, I'm sorry. Oh, so the question was, are you following the same guidelines when you talk about pap screening? Are you adding HPV? And I add HPV at 30 like the general guidelines are. Unless there's some reason to believe that she, you know, has HPV that she wouldn't clear. Yeah. Great.
physical exam is a physical exam is a physical exam, <laughs> right? Um, the issues are you want to make sure that the patient is comfortable with the exam. You have to keep in mind that people have often had sexual violence as well as physical violence in the trans community, so you want to be um, as sensitive as you can to that, and I think there's a movement across the country towards trauma-informed care, and I think this kind of trauma-informed care is going to be particularly relevant for this population. As I talked about earlier, you want to make sure that you um, only do the exam that you need to do for the problems that you're addressing and that you're not doing things that you don't need to do out of a sense of curiosity. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the gender-specific labs that you would do, but obviously you do your regular HIV labs for people. And this is my spiel that I gave earlier. Most trans people, as we learned from the data I presented earlier, have had negative experiences with healthcare providers. Um, and so developing the trust and rapport that I think many of us are used to having with our patients. I mean, I find that HIV care providers often have really great relationships with our patients and they, you know, trust us. Um, that developing that trust and rapport can take longer than you expect. Um, so just be prepared for that. It's not you. You're awesome. Right? <laughs> yes? That is a great question. So the question is, you know, the 19% of people who've been refused care because they're transgender, is it because of stigma or is it because people don't know how to provide that care? And I would say it's hard to tease out, right? That wasn't, you know, followed through on in terms of qualitative research or further information. But I do think the two are intimately tied. I think one of the reasons that most of us don't get that education is because trans people are sort of invisible or have been until recently. I think there's more attention. And so because they were considered, you know, stigmatized, other, different, and so we don't get that training, and then we don't know what to do when they show up, right? <laughs> yes? I mean, I do think they're tied together, because I think if you don't learn how to do it, then you don't have a chance to do it. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people just don't. I've had patients in the I've referred difficult patients to because they didn't want to do it. It wasn't because they didn't know how, but it was knowledge. Right, one would hope that an endocrinologist knows how to manage hormones. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think they are tied together. Yes? They are very connected, um, tied together primarily because if you, people don't, don't want to say that they're, that they're uncomfortable or they don't want to do it, it's much easier to say, I don't know, I'm not qualified. It's not you, it's me. That's not true. Because if, I mean, if you're a physician, you've gone through school, you've learned the capacity to acquire your information. You know, many of us have had to learn HIV management. You have to learn hepatitis C treatment has its change and continue to change. You've had to learn about <laughs> I feel like I'm preaching to the choir in this room. Yes. Are there, are there gender preferences that transgender women have or not regarding who does their exams and oh. prefer to be seen by men or women? That is a great question. Is there a preference for transgender patients for what the gender of their provider is? Um, I've actually not seen research on that, so I can't give you a data-driven. Um, my... I do a lot of qualitative research with the trans community in Baltimore where I live, and my impression is that people want somebody who's going to be nice to them and who knows what they're doing, and it doesn't really matter the rest of it. That's been what I've seen. Other people are nodding like that's been your experience too. Yes? You say pay attention to pronouns. Mm -hmm. So is it copacetic for the front desk staff or just the point of first contact? Mm -hmm. I 
I think, that sounds, I think that's great. And especially if they do it for every patient. I wouldn't pick out somebody that you think might be trans and then just ask that person. Because <laughs> that's more stigmatizing. Yeah, and some, and, um, oh, I don't have it in this talk, but there are examples of intake forms. It just has that on the form. So when the person comes in and they get those like 8,000 pieces of paper to fill out, that could be one of the questions. And then the person at the front desk will just have it in front of them and won't have to ask either. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to say that louder because I, I suspect there's other people who didn't hear you, so let me know if I get it wrong. <laughs> so the more a provider, <laughs> you're like, nobody's hearing this. Good luck running around the room. Um, the more the provider uses the person's pro correct pronoun and their correct name, the name that they want to be called and the pronoun that want to be used, the better the visit typically goes. And I would say that would be true especially for anybody. <laughs> especially, you know, if it's a, a pap smear or... Mm. Uh, a prostate exam for a trans woman. Yeah. Know, the more you call her Susan and use female pronouns, uh, the better it seems to go. Absolutely, absolutely. So the, especially if it's a sensitive exam. And that gets to something that's here about using gender neutral terms whenever possible when you're referring to somebody's body parts um, and possessive pronouns. So I don't know how many times a trans woman would want to hear, so I'm going to examine your penis right now, like over and over and over again. But you wouldn't want to do that, right? So you can talk about doing a genital exam and what you're going to do. I'm, I'm a, obviously a talker. Um, so I tend to talk people through the exam, but I have had patients tell me, I don't want you to talk me through the exam. I want you to just do it. And so I'll say, I'm going to touch you now, but I won't talk through like what I'm touching and what I'm looking for. So it's a patient preference. Yeah, I'm going to tell you what happens and I'm going to tell you what I think should happen. So I think what usually happens is people just ask once and then they're done. But people change, right? Some people transition at 80, 70, 60, some people transition at 12. So I think having a routine where you just check, just like you update the address every time somebody comes in, you update their phone number, you can just check on whether the pronouns are the same and the names are the same. So I, ideally, I think you would recheck, but in a very easygoing way. Oh, there's lots of hands all over the room now. Yes. That's a great point. So yeah, keep having, if you have an electronic record that have those alerts so people know the right name to call every patient. Yep. 
It's perfect. Okay, I'm going to go this side of the room because I feel like I've been ignoring you. Were there hands here? Comments? Yeah. Yeah, I would say I wouldn't ask the front desk to go delving into their gender history, but they could ask you quick questions like, what name do you want to be called? What's your pronoun? Yeah. And then be done. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Can you go back to the thing about your vagina and your breasts? Because I usually identify people's body parts as theirs. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like a standard thing. And so I didn't quite understand the nuance of why that's a problem. So, for example, you identify as a man and you're having a chest exam. And then you're with a provider who keeps saying, your breasts, your breasts, your breasts. In our society, breasts are very feminized, right? And that might be a part of your body you don't want and you don't plan to keep for a long period of time. And to keep having them associated with you in that kind of way can be traumatizing for some people. Not for everybody, but it's just something to keep in mind. Some people might not care. I just say, I'm going to do a breast exam now. And then I do a breast exam. Or I say, I'm going to examine your chest now. Yeah. Depending on the gender identity of the person. Right. Yeah. Y'all are asking great questions and making great comments. I feel like I should just, we should all sit in a circle and just share. <laughs> um, so the stuff we've already talked about. I'm going to go over this relatively quickly because I'm referring to a document that already exists that you all have access to and is now many, many years old because time flies. So the World Professional Association for Transgender Health publishes standards of care um, that they update periodically. The most recent update was in 2011. Um, and I just pulled out a couple of quotes from there to sort of to convince people who aren't in the room because all of you are in the room here <laughs> to do this. Um, but that providing hormone therapy is a medically necessary intervention for many individuals, particularly individuals who have gender dysphoria. Hormone therapy has to be individualized based on that patient's goals, the risk-benefit ratio of the medications, the presence of other medical conditions, and the consideration of social and economic issues, right? So I just want to put that out there, the medically necessary part especially, because I think we get challenged with that a lot, like, oh, this is an optional or cosmetic um, procedure, and for many individuals, it is not. And we have um, an increasing amount of data um, that draws associations between suicide and not being able to live in your correct gender presentation, right? So what, you, what you're doing if you're providing gender-affirming care for people can be life-saving, 
So that's what I mean by medically necessary. Yes. Yeah, the new term is gender dysphoria. Um, we used to, you know, I'm just going to, this is being recorded, so shh. But we <laughs> used to use another diagnosis, especially when it was a, almost every insurance company would deny claims related to gender dysphoria. But now there's, with the ACA and some of the rules increasingly, um, increasing rules about fairness and the lack of ability for many insurance companies to exclude, like this is now federal law, then you can actually use the diagnosis that you want to use, which is gender dysphoria, which you are helping to treat by helping that person's physical appearance align with their gender identity. So, yes. I have seen that too, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it depends. I think that's more of a philosophical question, right? Some people feel like absolutely not. That is not the right diagnosis. But other people feel like it is an endocrine disorder, right? The person's endocrine system is not appropriate for their gender. And what you are doing is correcting their endocrine system to match their gender, right? So in that case, that's an endocrine disorder. Other people see it in different ways, and I feel like we could spend all day talking about that. But <laughs> you can go to dinner or drinks afterwards. Yes. <laughs> Well, I feel pretty strongly about that, so this is going to be my opinion. Um, it's like saying to somebody, if you can't provide an entire meal, do not feed them, right? <laughs> I think that is not realistic. Um, it's just like many people provide HIV care in very rural settings where you don't have access to specialists to handle all sorts of things, but you provide that care because that's primary care, and without it, people are at a loss. Right? So I think ideally, yes, you would have access to endocrinologists and psychologists and surgeons, and that's great. And there are settings that have that. But if you don't have that, you can still address um, somebody's gender needs without that. Absolutely. Oh, well, I would, I'm not arguing that you only address, you only just give hormones and ignore the rest of the person. Right. I think. I have a response, and clearly this person has a response.
psychologist near to you to refer the patient, but at least you are given an SSRI to help the depression of the patient. It's the same giving the hormone to the transgender patient. Maybe you don't have the, the full cycle that they need, not even for refer to because you don't didn't know where to refer, but at least you are helping something and the patient is very Yes, and I'm going to make one more comment, and then we're going to move on from this because uh, there's like 30 more slides. No, that's okay. I'm just trying. <laughs> I'm just trying to like not have them come and beat me up. Um, this also was a conversation you have with the patient, right? You can say this is the limitation of what I can offer. This is what might be available to you in the world outside of here. Is that okay? And if they say I would rather have this than nothing then I think that that's a patient-provider relationship and you're being honest about what you can offer and they're being honest about what they need. And I think that's probably the best way to move forward. Okay. Yes. Okay. She just said something that I don't even know what she said, but it's related to the microphone. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to try to remember to repeat everything, and I and I'll try to, I, because I don't really. I mean, maybe you're a sprinter, but I think you might have trouble <laughs> by yourself getting throughout the room. Um, okay, thanks. And if you can like kind of look for her for the microphone, that would be great. And I'm sorry, I, this is a workshop, so I thought maybe we'd talk to each other. I you know. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, responsibilities of ho hormone prescribers. This is all within the WPATH guidelines if you want to um, read it yourself. But obviously, if you're going to be prescribing hormones, you want to do, do it responsibly. You want to make sure that you do an initial evaluation. You want to discuss the uh, expected effects. And this is part of the reality testing. Like, this is what we can expect to happen, and these are things that you don't expect to happen. You want to talk about reproductive options, right? So hormone therapy is not birth control. But if somebody is getting hormone therapy, they might have reduced fertility, right? So you don't want them to rely on it to prevent pregnancy, but you also don't want them to be wanting to have biological offspring in the future and not be able to. So to have that conversation is important. Confirm that they have the capacity to understand risk and benefits, which hopefully you do for all of your patients for any medical decision making. Provide ongoing monitoring. So don't be like, here's a prescription with 11 refills for some hormones. Good luck to you in life. <laughs> Communicate with other, other providers, and I, I find that that's essential. Even in urban settings that are theoretically trans-friendly and there's lots of other referral sources, that if I'm referring somebody to a place I'm not familiar with and I don't know for sure that that place is trans-friendly, that I try to communicate in advance with the, with the providers. Part of that, and I always, of course, get the patient's permission, but for example, if I'm sending a trans man for a public ultrasound, um, that if I can, I communicate with the ultrasound provider that you're going to get somebody who's going to come in for pelvic ultrasound and they're going to be a man and don't freak out and don't be weird and don't refuse to do the exam, right? And so I take the brunt of that conversation instead of the patient showing up and being like, I had the worst experience ever and I'm never going anywhere you ever send me again. So a little bit of that background work can be really helpful. Um, and the last one, I've had some people refer to it as the letter. Are you going to give me the letter? And I was like, what is the letter? Um, so sometimes patients ask for a brief written statement indicating that they're under medical su um, supervision for masculinizing or feminizing hormone therapy. And they use it for a variety of reasons. Sometimes you need to write a letter so people can get identity documents and things like that. But I did have a patient say that they needed it to go to the bathroom, which made me really sad. But people might ask for that, and I think being prepared to write it or having a standard is often helpful. So there's a microphone right near you, yes. 
loud. I've had patients ask for those letters for their job, especially mm. as they're transitioning. And I just am wondering about the approach, because my standard approach is I'm happy to write it. <laughs> but if you present this to your job, you're opening the door for them to ask questions. Are you ready for that? Mm -hmm. Because once you've opened the door, they have information they can do whatever they're going to do with it, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. A part of that is depending on where you are, right? Some places there are legal protections around gender identities, like Maryland just passed a law last year, so if an employer gets that letter and then proceeds to discriminate against the person, then theoretically they have legal recourse. Now, I don't know how many people have lawyers and money and all that kind of stuff to follow through, but theoretically. But most places don't have those kind of protections, and you're right, so you want to make sure that the person is ready. But I have that conversation for anybody who's beginning transition and is in a workplace, because at some point, you're, people are going to know. Right? <laughs> like it's not a hideable thing when your gender is changing beyond a certain point and have that conversation about who they want to tell, how they want to tell, what that means for them, what are some of the consequences. Just provide a space for them to talk that out. So this isn't open up a huge conversation, but just... Sure it won't. No, <laughs> um, I've had um, providers tell me that they will not see a patient or provide hormone therapy without a psychiatric evaluation mm. and a letter from a psychiatrist. I don't particularly do that unless I'm generally concerned about the psychiatric health of the patient and do they need a psychiatrist in general. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't have to repeat them now because they're on the microphone. Okay, so I don't require a letter. So what happened for many years is the standards of care were interpreted to require that people have a letter with a diagnosis of gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria before they could receive hormones. Um, many places, and even if you read closely the standards of care, suggest that it's helpful to have psychological support when transitioning, and obviously if somebody has a psychiatric illness that needs treatment, you want to make sure that they have access to those services, but it's not a requirement. If the person is an adult and able to make adult decisions and give informed consent, then that is enough for the person to know. And obviously you, all, you have conversations and make sure people understand the consequences and think about it in all the realms of their lives, but I expect that most people have been thinking about their gender long before they got to you. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's not a requirement that I have. Yes. We, we're very supportive of hormone therapy, but we sometimes get in situations where someone's very interested in in very high doses, and 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 it's, it's analogous a, a bit to kind of testosterone replacement therapy, where people, you have we don't have a lot of experience. Do you have strategies on how you approach that risk-benefit discussion with patients? Yes. So I, I do a little bit of bullet three. I have that conversation about. Um, if somebody is starting to transition with hormone therapy, that they're going to, what they're going to have is puberty, right, basically, a second version of puberty. And it's going to take just as long as the first version of puberty, <laughs> sadly enough. Um, and it only refer reverses some of those effects. So no matter high, how high the dose goes, there's some things that are not going to change. Um, people do get faster results. So like the slope goes like this and levels out instead of like this and levels out if you take higher doses. So I don't try to pretend like, oh, you won't see faster changes. People do, but at a very high cost. And sometimes it's helpful. I follow testosterone levels in trans women to show that it's within the female range. And that can be very helpful for people to see, just like following your viral load can be sort of a good feedback loop for patients following their testosterone levels. I wouldn't follow their estradiol levels because that depends on what version of um, estrogen you're giving them. It, I, I don't. Some people recommend doing that. And I find that typically people need super physiological levels of estrogen. So that doesn't tell me anything. I don't know what's 
what to do. But the testosterone level, I know when that's in a normal female range. And I know that the normal female range is not zero, right? <laughs> so com sometimes I use that to try to help. But yeah, there's some people who just want to take a whole lot of estrogen and want to get the changes faster. And I would like to lose 10 pounds by tomorrow. So it's <laughs> like it happens. So you suggest we don't check the estrogen level at all? I don't suggest that you don't do it. I just say that I don't do it. I don't find it helpful. But if you go to the protocol from the um, Center of Excellence for Transgender Health, they, all, they say that it's fine to check the estradiol. But you just keep in mind, if somebody, depending on the type of estrogen they're taking, if they're taking estradiol, checking estradiol help level is helpful. But if they're one of those people who's still on conjugated equine estrogens, that will not be reflected in their estradiol levels. So they might not they have estradiol levels that look really low, but they're actually on high levels of estrogen, and you wouldn't be able to pick that up from the estradiol levels. Yes. Yes. Based on that, <coughs> with my patient, I <coughs> excuse me, I do transgender person. The first thing that I do when they come to me in <coughs> in my first visit is after doing the approach and everything is, I tell them, I'm here to help you. To, to meet your goals in your body, but my part is to do it in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Then don't expect that you're gonna go today and tomorrow you're gonna come with the, with the changes. It will be little by little because you need your, your features, but you need it healthy. And after I talk to them, I I'm have right now like 30 transgender that are in the process. And all of them are doing great, and all of them, there are some that come, listen, I don't have my, my teeth, I, I don't like it because it's, they, you, you just be, take, take care, be safe, and you're gonna get it. And they do, knowing one week like they did, maybe they need one month, but when they start to see mm -hmm. the, the results, and okay, you were right, and I don't have any problem with them. Mm -hmm. Once you speak to them and you explain to them how the thing is, for example, with the estradiol and all the estrogens, is the first thing that you tell them is estrogen can produce blood clots. We don't need that. We want you to get your things, but without getting blood clots. They understand. I'm going to interrupt you for a second because I feel like y'all are already talking about things that some people in the room might not know anything about yet. So I'm going to try to get through as many of the slides as I can. You're, you're absolutely right. And that's like the trans talk 302, right? <laughs> um, and I think if we get through the slides where we talk about, uh, I'd like to talk about what some of the side effects are so people can kind of see those who, who maybe don't prescribe hormones yet and those kinds of things. Is that okay? Because I'm loving this conversation, but I also realize that six o'clock is like 20 minutes away. And um, let's, yeah, just keep going. So this, we already talked about all the things on this slide. I did want to point out that there are several protocols readily available. So for your colleagues who are like, I don't know how to do this, you can be like, well, the Endocrine Society of North America has guidelines, the University of California San Francisco has guidelines, California Community Health Center has guidelines, and Fenway Institute has provider training. So there you go. Um, let's see. So this is just to refer to the guidelines from the Center of Excellence for Transgender Health that were just updated in June. So that's a great place to go. And then to focus on the therapies that we use for feminization. Um, I typically use a combination of antiandrogens and estrogens. And the point of the antiandrogens is to allow a lower dose of estrogen, so a safer dose of estrogen when prescribing. The use of progesterone, progesterone is 
controversial, maybe more or less controversial. Some people swear by it because it helps um, with breast development. Other people don't use it. I don't typically use it. Um, I tend to call it the PMS hormone. Um, <laughs> but if somebody comes and they really feel like it's important to them to have it, I'm not going to be like, no, you can't have it. Um, but I haven't found that it made that big of a difference in the patients that I've worked with. So these are a long list of antiandrogens um, and progestins. The first three are antiandrogens, and you can see the starting dose, the average dose, and the maximum dose that are recommended listed there. And I think you will all get a copy of the slides. Yeah? Okay, they should be available because I had to send them really early, so you should all get them. <laughs> um, they're there for download. Okay, great. So you can download and you'll have these. And they're also available at the UCSF um, website. They just won't be all pretty and organized like I made them. Um, the benefits of the antiandrogens, like I said, um, are to enable feminization at a lower dose of estrogen. They also do um, provide some modest breast development. And by modest, I mean modest. <laughs> You're not going to get like double D breasts from using spironolactone. Um, it does soften the facial and body hair typically. Um, if you use spironolactone, which is most commonly used because it's dirt cheap and it's been around forever and we know the side effects of it pretty well, you want to watch out for hyperkalemia, hypotension, and drug-drug interactions. Um, and spironolactone is contraindicated in renal insufficiency and elevated potassium, obviously, and you wouldn't want to give it if somebody's on an ACE or an ARB for hypertension. Okay. Um, progestins, like I said, um, some of the benefits are mild central antiandrogen effects, some improved breast development anecdotally, and improved libido or mood anecdotally. And I mean anecdote like somebody told me, because I've never had a patient <laughs> who, who told me that. Um, that could, of course, be because I don't use it. So caveat there. Um, some of the risk or mood disturbances, potential direct androgenizing, androgenizing effects. So people who have had women on Depo-Provera, um, Depo have you had some complaint about androgenizing? Right, so that's kind of the opposite of what you're trying to do. Some concerns about increased cardiovascular disease risk, and it's contraindicated in people who have um, cardiovascular disease already. These are the estrogens that are available to use. Um, conjugated equine estrogen is Premarin. Um, it's not preferred because of the increased risk. Everybody heard about the women's health study and concerns about conjugated um, estrogen. So I typically use an estradiol. And it comes in an IM forms, two different IM forms, an oral form, and a patch. Ethanol estradiol is the kind of estrogen that you find in birth control pills. And I find that especially internationally, and people come to you from other countries, might be using oral contraceptive pills for feminization. It's incredibly high risk for um, thrombotic disease, so it's not recommended. And if you can switch that person to another form of estrogen, that can be a very important harm reduction activity. People like it too because it's, it's much cheaper, but not safer. I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, no, this is, it's different. This is 17-beta estradiol, and this is ethanol estradiol. And that's the, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, I should have said that. I'm sorry. So you want to make sure it's a 17-beta estradiol, the kind that you use for menopause. All right, okay. Are there questions or comments about this? The doses are listed there. Okay. The desired effects, obviously, breast growth, um, although most people usually only get an A to B cup. Some of that depends on when they start, how high the doses are that they take, um, and their genetics, right? 
So if every woman in their family has an A cup, it's unlikely that they will start estrogen and suddenly be double Ds. Just let people know. Um, <laughs> there is some redistribution of body fat, softening of the skin, decrease in body hair, although it won't stop all body hair growth. So if they have like a furry trunk, they might need to do something about that because estrogen is not going to change that. It can slow or stop scalp hair loss if they have male pattern baldness, but it will not cause the hair to grow back. Um, it does typically result in a more favorable lipid profile with higher um, HDL and lower LDL. There is also testicular atrophy and loss of fertility, so that's why that discussion about reproductive planning is important. Loss of erections and decreased libido is very common. Decreased upper body strength, some emotional changes, and weight gain are also very common. This one I think is really handy, and I usually have a printout of this that I, talk, that I show people and I talk through in the office, um, and it's available um, in the standards of care, the seventh version, because it tells what to expect, when you can expect to start seeing those changes, and when you'd expect to see the maximum effect. And this is consistent with what um, the person in red, I don't know your name, um, had mentioned, that helping people to understand the earliest you'd see almost anything would be one month, and the first thing you see is no longer having spontaneous erections, which is not what anybody ever comes to me saying. Like, please, can you get rid of my spontaneous erections? Never. Um, so the desired changes usually take about three months before you start seeing some changes, and sometimes as long as six months in some people. And then it can take as long as five years to get the maximum effect. So that's important so people can sort of plan and be realistic about what to expect. There's a comment over here. Yes. Loss of, loss of I've had patients who absolutely never want to have another erection, and I've had patients who want to maintain mm -hmm. the ability to have erections. And how do you deal with that? That's great. And you guys did not pick up on that in the case. Yeah. At the beginning, there is a case. So I do want to point out that this is decreased spontaneous erections. So pe people are still typically able to have an erection, but it has less tumescence. Um, so they're softer erections. Um, for people who want to maintain erections, I typically talk to them about why. Maybe they have a, a partner that they want to penetrate. Maybe they're engaged in sex work and that's part of their livelihood. And I want to know that because then I want to talk to them about decreasing their risk of STIs or transmitting HIV, things like that. Um, but then, you know, for any other human being that came to us asking for this medication to maintain erections, I think at this day and age, most people would provide that medication, so I wouldn't see any reason not to provide it for a trans woman. It's my general stand. Okay. There are risks associated with estrogen therapy, the biggest one being um, thrombotic disease, right? So that's a conversation I have with every patient. There are other risks that are listed there that you could probably just look up in the package insert of the estrogens. Um, so I won't go over them in a lot of detail. I do want to point out that there isn't any data on increased risk of breast cancer um, specific to transgender women, right? And if you think about lifetime exposure of estrogen, even if people start transitioning early around adolescence, their lifetime exposure to estrogen is going to probably be lower than most women, um, although they might have a much higher spike of exposure when they start therapy. Yes. Quick question. Do you have um, rules or expectations for your patients around smoking cessation mm. as doses go up? Oh. <laughs> you read my mind. <laughs> um, 
Yes. So part of what we talk about in terms of reducing their risk for a clot, and a clot, you know, you can talk through what a clot is like. It's horrible, right? Your leg swells up, it travels possibly to your lungs, you can't breathe, you die. Those are not things that people typically want. I don't try to scare people, but just to be realistic about what a blood clot really means, because we're all medical people. We know when we say blood clot that it means all these terrible things, but people in the general population are just like, eh, you know, a clot. It doesn't sound like a big deal. So making sure they understand what that means. Um, and that importance of using the minimum effective dose. If somebody's over 40, um, I typically um, will add a low-dose aspir aspirin if that's feasible in terms of their other medical conditions. Um, if they're a smoker, um, I will recommend using a patch. People don't typically like that because what happens with a patch? It's the slow process, <laughs> right? Um, and I encourage people to stop smoking. I do know some providers who will not prescribe estrogen unless the person stops smoking. That is not a practice that I have because I find that when you tell people I'm not giving you hormones unless you stop smoking, they either lie and say they stop smoking or they get hormones on the street. So I would rather have them come in and be monitored than to have them get hormones on the street or lie. And I'm not a person who's gonna run around and get urine coating on people, that just seems like a lot. It is important that if they're going to have surgery, including gender-affirming surgery, that they stop their estrogen two weeks beforehand. This can be hard for people to do. So talk through why it's important that they're going to be immobilized and the risk for clots go up and they'll be able to go back on and all that kind of stuff is important. There are very few absolute contraindications to giving someone estrogen. And I'm on a listserv of providers who uh, provide care for transgender people. And they're every, it feels like every year or so there's like a blip of conversations about who you would and wouldn't give um, estrogen to in terms of these list of contraindications, relative and absolute. Somebody has an estrogen-dependent cancer, I'm pretty much not going to give them estrogen, right? Um, if they have a current embolic disease, like they're walking around with a clot right now or they're on anticoagulation, um, I won't give them estrogen. An end-stage chronic liver disease. Relative contraindications are when we talk about smoking. There are different um, feelings about that. Uncontrolled hypertension and diabetes. A desire to maintain fertility is going to be really important because you can't guarantee that that person is going to maintain fertility. So if they have money and options for freezing sperm and things like that, they might be able to do that. But um, that's something to have a conversation about. The controversy is around people with a history of a clotting disorder, right? If they have a clotting disorder that's not related to estrogen and they've had a clot in the past, would you give them estrogen? And I see people on both sides of that, like, well, if we can manage their high risk for clots, then we can give them estrogen, and it's such an important part of people's well-being that I'm willing to do it. And I see other providers who are like, if that person has a clot and dies, I'm going to feel horrible for the rest of my life, so I'm not going to do it. I'm agnostic. I haven't really had anybody come to me who's had a clot and said, hey, give me estrogen. So I haven't had to face this. So maybe those of you who have might have something to say about that. Um, but it's under relative contraindications. They have hyperprolactinemia, um, untreated or treatment-resistant depression. For whatever reason, you'd want to manage that. And then migraines. I'll get back to you. Hold on, yes. I find the um, fertility issue difficult, especially in someone who's really young. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just don't know. Mm -hmm. And they know they want to get hormones, but they can't really commit to never wanting to have children. I find that a difficult discussion. That is a really difficult discussion if somebody is young and they're not sure if they want to have kids. And I think all you can do is talk about informed consent. Mm -hmm. And I typically, in, in most of the practices that I've worked in where there's a lot of transgender patients, had an actual consent form where we 
I made sure that I listed out, so I wouldn't forget, I listed out all the things that we talked about in terms of risk and benefit, that they had a chance to ask those questions, and then the, they signed. Does that help if 10 years later the person really wants to give birth? But not everybody who wants to give birth is able to give birth anyway, so, and there's other ways that people have children. So I think that's part of the discussion that you have, and it is a tough spot. Yeah. And then you had a... I just was wondering about chronic liver disease, like hep mm -hmm. C or hep B, you know, if, if the, they're not in stage. Yeah. There's so many people with chronic liver disease that I don't, I, I don't use that as a contraindication. If their liver enzymes are 10 times normal and out of control, that would not be somebody I'd start estrogen in, but then I'd want to address whatever that, that was. But yeah, chronic hepatitis B or hepatitis C hopefully being managed. So I boiled all that down to one slide. So <laughs> most people, most trans women who are getting hormone therapy for transition take estradiol somewhere between one to six milligrams a day, probably closer to the six end. And spironolactone, because in our practice, people are often uninsured or their insurance won't necessarily cover some of the more expensive medications. Spironolactone between 100 and 200 milligrams a day or in divided doses sometimes, or finasteride, and people can get that. So let's see if we have time to talk about Monica. So we have three minutes, <laughs> so we don't have time to talk about Monica, but what I did want to do is talk about, there is a summary, there we go, here's the, the take-home point. The, the um, DHS guidelines has a whole table in the back of drug interactions, which I think is amazing, and you can like word search it if you look at it online for whatever drug you want instead of going through the 9,000 tables. And there is a section for oral contraceptives and its interactions with antiretroviral agents. So use that with a grain of salt, because keep in mind that this is not exactly the same formulation of estrogen, so it might not have the exact same interactions, but that is what we try to base things on. And from what we have right now, if there is a drug interaction, typically it decreases the amount of estradiol. It does not typically affect the amount of the antiretroviral agent. So what you might need to do in terms of dose adjustment would be of the estrogen, not of anybody's antiretroviral agent. And I think I'm going to stop there. Um, I don't have anywhere to go because my life is kind of boring. So if people want to stay around and um, talk individually, ask questions, I'm happy to do that. But I think the people who work here probably want to go home. So I will <laughs> turn off the microphone and everything now. Thank you. <laughs>